Welcome to the Sunday Service Podcast of First Universalist Church, a Unitarian Universalist congregation located in Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are a radically welcoming and progressive faith community deeply committed to love, justice, spiritual growth, and living out our values in the world. To learn more, visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org. Our responsive reading today is in the Gray Hymnal, number 580. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality, tied in a single garment of destiny. There are some things in our social system to which all of us ought to be maladjusted. We must evolve for all human conflict, a method which rejects revenge, aggression, and retaliation. Before it's too late, I'm gonna say that again. Before it's too late, we must narrow the gaping chasm between our proclamations of peace and our lowly deeds which precipitate and perpetuate war. We must pursue peaceful ends through peaceful means. You know, there's some advantages to having the bookends of the millennials in my house. Uh, my daughter, my oldest daughter, is born in 2000, the end of the millennials. And my partner's born in 82, sort of the beginning of the millennials. Being born in 58 doesn't give me much of a chance in that house. <laughs> but there are some things I've done as I've learned. I've listened. And I've learned some really cool expressions. And there are some of these expressions that I really just love. I like adorbs instead of adorable. They, they abbreviate everything. You notice that? They cut everything off. But the one that of particular excitement for me that I use quite a bit to describe things and peoples that are radically chaotic, beautifully terrifying, and emotionally challenging. It's also an expression that I've come to use to describe the Bible. And that expression, that little catchphrase is, hot mess. <laughs> Think about it. Every human drama, every political hijink, every economic flip, every characteristic of a dysfunctional family, Every kind of intimacy, every kind of rule, every kind of oppression, every kind of law, war, abuse, every kind of love, peace, and reconciliation is found in the 66 books that make up this canon of ancient literature. The Bible is a hot mess of humans, written by humans for communities 
that we're living in hot messes. Communities in the Near East, communities in the Middle East, and communities in Africa. Now, as a humanist, this is why I have spent so much time studying and learning from this ancient writing. Reading them, particularly in the original Greek and Hebrew, these pages are alive with the human quest to seek a raison d'etre, a reason to be in the chaos, a reason that we're facing ethical dilemmas, a reason to explore the spiritual enchantment of being in relationship with self, with community, and with the divine. The Bible has helped me see true humanism in a realist context, a humanism that has an openness to the totality and richness of all human experience including the religious and the spiritual dimensions found in this literature. Now, today we look at one of those stories, Luke 15. Now, first, a little bit about Luke's gospel. While it has the name Luke, it is actually anonymous. His syntax and composition is excellent in good Greek, he was probably highly educated, probably a Greek, non-Jewish person. We know that he had a copy of the Gospel of Mark with him, the oldest Gospel, and perhaps Matthew in his hands as references as he's writing this. We also know that the writer was well-versed in literature, the arts, historical criticism, and the philosophy of Stoicism, Epicureanism, and Cynicism. Also, there is considerable pagan imagery making it a gospel that is full of cultural and religious syncretism. One of the major themes in Luke's gospel is Jesus's ministry to the excluded or disadvantaged, and also it has more stories that have women as central characters than any other gospel. In fact, in seminary, I did a deep dive in the textual criticism of Luke and Greek, and one of the things you see is that every parable, every story goes male, female, male, female. You probably noticed it in Luke 15. It starts with the shepherd, then the woman, then the father and the sons. It's an amazing piece of literature, and there are many surprises, twists, and turns. Now, one of the reasons we love parables and riddles and folk tales in our culture is that they often force us to consider ourselves in unusual situations with an unusual choice. Parables get us out of our comfort zone of logic and reason and cultural norms and make us think about that favorite junior high school game we used to play. What would you do if? What would you do if? What would you do if you were in that situation? And better yet, what kind of moral dilemma does a story present that gets your undies in a twist? This story does. And for those of you who didn't do your homework, didn't do your homework, I will just share with you the gospel of Luke chapter 15. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. 
So he told them this parable. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and rejoices. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? When she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I just lost. Just so I tell you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Then Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. A few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered the property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to spare? But here I am dying of hunger. I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired hands. So he set off and went to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran out and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the father said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said, No, quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Now, the elder son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and asked, what was going on? He replied, your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go. His father came out and began to plead with him, but his answered his father, listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your commands, yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of our, yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes? You killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. 
but we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and he's come to life. He was lost and has now been found. Now when I read this, I can't help but see myself in this story. You probably can see yourselves in it as well as the coin, the sheep, the lost son. Just think about that intransigent single sheep. Maybe the sheep, I think, just wanted to get away. Just get away for a few minutes from the more insufferable sheep in the herd that did ah, bah, bah, all day long, never shutting up. <laughs> I would. Maybe the, coin, maybe the coin that slipped out of the pocket into the pillowy area of the couch, it's like that sock that never finds a mate and it's in some kind of bunker in your laundry room that you can't find where it is but you know they're all in there conspiring to lose one another again. Maybe, I thought about this a lot, maybe that rebellious son himself is queer and he needed to come and get away from the judgmental nature of the community of his birth. Maybe. That is what these parables have the power to do. They help us keep imagining our humanity, our frailty, and our vulnerability. Now Jesus is telling this story to a group of highly religious people who fancy themselves as the 99 sheep, the nine coins, and the never lost son. They are the goody two-shoes that would never, ever run off to find themselves somewhere. These guys would never, ever slip under the passenger seat into the carpeted well, which never fails to collect all manner of things. These religious guys aren't impressed by Jesus' description of a man or a God, as the metaphor implies, not impressed by anyone who spends his time going looking for a singular lost sheep. The man God should be spending time with, the well-behaved ones, that's what they think. They should spend time with the good people of the church, not the bad ones of the church, and those people that will always stay by his side. Now remember, the Pharisees, these religious people, were always chasing Jesus around, watching him, harassing him, waiting for him to sit with the wrong people, say the wrong thing. They even harassed him for feeding hungry people on the Sabbath because the rules of the Torah says that you're not supposed to feed people from that particular grain on the Sabbath. This is why I know, and historically we know it's true, that, that Jesus was brown-skinned. I know he was. Because <laughs> he cannot catch a break with these religious police. Now, maybe if Jesus looked like James Taylor or Tom Petty, he might have had a different, different situation with them, okay? But Jesus is brown skin. And here they come. Every time he's trying to just be Jesus, they're on him. Now, these religious authorities did this to Jesus because he was acting like a prophet, but hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Now, remember... In this cultural context, a sinner is a person with an undesirable job. 
which is why you always see tax collectors and sinners mentioned together in these texts. It is not something, it is not someone, this is important, it is not someone who breaks the rules or moral code. Sinner is more ontological than behaviorally prescriptive. Much more ontological in this context. Now, it would be like me saying to Justin, wherever he is, <laughs> wherever these ministers are, it would be like me saying to Justin, Justin, you call yourself a religious man, and you're hanging out with the IRS and the compost collectors. <laughs> Definite equivalent. These people, these Pharisees, they were the self-proclaimed self-righteous people, the ones who can't help but tell us how faithful, how prayerful, and how saintly they are. The ones whose Instagram and Pinterest and Facebook might, if they had feeds back then, would drip with verse after verse from the scriptures and bumper sticker quips about who God loves and who God hates. You know these people. We've seen them before. Now back at the parable, a simple reading would conclude from this parable. The sheep was found, the coin was found, the son came home, and all is forgiven. And there are parties for the finding of the son and a celebration of his life returning. Now for some, the story stops here because it's about God's forgiveness and human repentance. But I say not so fast. I think that this story is about two groups of people that are struggling and competing for the hearts and minds of the communities around them. The religious people and the spiritual people. The Pharisees are the religious people. And Jesus and the Father of the sons are the spiritual people. The eldest son is part of the religious people. Think about it. We have the undesirables, the low lives, as they say, sitting at the table with Jesus while this story is being told. And the punchline is a smack in the face to those Pharisees hovering over Jesus at the table. When Jesus not so subtly compares their religious dogma, their prescriptions, their rules about who should sit with who, they're comparing them to the eldest brother's complaints about the extravagant celebration for the family scoundrel. He's directly going at them. He's like, I will, you know, if he could, you know what, he would say it but he's doing it in, in his way. And he's coming at the religious authorities with ridicule. From the religious eldest son's perspective, such generosity to his younger brother is simply not fair. He's the good son. He shows up for work every day. He does his job. He lives properly. He follows the rules. And when when he discovers this feast and celebration being offered to a younger brother who almost certainly does not deserve it, he launches into a bitter tirade of jealousy and anger, just like the Pharisees. For all of his moral righteousness, he refuses to recognize his own privilege. The father reminds him, son, 
Son, like the father we saw with those beautiful eyes. Son, son, you are always with me. And all that is mine is yours. In one sentence, the father affirms the closeness of their relationship and gently reminds the eldest son that he loses nothing. He loses nothing by welcoming his brother home and joining in the celebration. Jesus is demonstrating in this story spirituality. And I like to think of spirituality as like an all-you-can-eat smorgasbord. You can pick anything you want. If it's going to help you find hope, pick anything you want, eat it. If it's going to help you find meaning in your life, pick anything you want, eat it. If it's going to help give your life purpose, no matter what you've done in the past or what your status in society is, eat it, come. The table is ready for you. Religion, though, is a little bit like a fixed-price menu. <laughs> Not a smorgasbord, fixed price, with only one entree, one appetizer, one dessert. And, and you know the mean waitress that's telling you about the fixed-price dinner for tonight is always going to say to you, I'm sorry, there are no substitutions. Religion doesn't have substitutions. Spirituality does. You can move and evolve in spirituality. Religion is constriction. Spirituality is not interested in deciding who is the winner and who is the loser like religion is. Spirituality is interested in loving those who are present and seeking out those who need to be found. Spirituality is about a love that is extravagant all-encompassing, even wasteful maybe, and maybe even a little foolish. In this parable, the spirituality of love is more important than repentance. And this can be proven because in the original Greek, which I had to go back to, which was hard, but in the original Greek, Luke has written in, Repentance means to change one's mind. That is, represent a new way of understanding, a change of view, a way of seeing things in a different view. It is not about getting flogged. It is not about saying, I'm sorry. And it's not about going to confession or saying some prescriptive prayer. Parables about repentance in the Gospels are designed to evoke a depth of consciousness. That is to reveal what is new in you. Now the father does not say to the son, repent. There's no mention of that in that chapter. The father does not say repent. Instead, he extends his gracious welcome before his son even before he has a chance to finish his confession, his son is putting a robe on him and a ring on him and telling people to go and let's have a party. There's no explicit mention of repentance in this parable. The parable says simply to the younger son that he came to himself. He came to himself. That is what spirituality does. It helps us come to ourselves over and over and over again. He remembered who he was. 
making room for possibility and change. Spirituality is flexible. Religion is rigid. Spirituality is a road with no red lights. No red lights. Religion is stop sign after stop sign after stop sign after stop sign. Think about it. Think about it. The structural and thematic parallels between the sun, the sheep, and the coin suggests to us that a religious person, for a religious person, that repentance plays a role in all three stories, but it's this other kind of repentance, coming to oneself. But it's about change, and change doesn't happen as a result of religious punishment or religious shunning or religious rejection. Instead, it results from spiritual generosity. Spiritual generosity. The spiritual care of the shepherd for his lost sheep and the woman for her coin and the father for both of his sons. This parable is asking us to spread around some of that extravagant spiritual love that we have found. Now, maybe we have been lost. I know I've certainly been lost plenty of times in my life. Maybe, maybe we have always known how beloved we are. Or maybe we weren't sure, but we're getting sure now. Luke 15 is just one small chapter in one book of an ancient book. It is one chapter in the human chapter. One chapter in a long line of chapters that will include all sorts of gestures, kindnesses, apologies, starting overs, mistakes, offenses, delicate negations, concessions, ultimatums, joys, sorrows, tears, laughter, arguments, and makeups. The hard work of living together and apart, welcoming and goodbyes, embraces and refraining from embrace. It's called life, people. Life in community with those who we want to welcome and embrace who we want to hold in love, who we want to reconcile, who we want to come home. So here we are. We can almost hear those white sheets in the film, that unconditional love of those sheets flapping in the wind. So what are we to do? There they were in that film, standing there embracing one another as if nothing had happened. And here we stand. But we know how we've been betrayed, right? We are here now. What do we do? Do we go to the party? What are we to make of the one who wounded us? How do we respond to the one who is welcoming our betrayer with a loving embrace? Does it matter that our betrayer hasn't truly repented or come to himself? Does it matter that they don't appear to have changed their ways? What about the injustice of the whole thing? How do we repair the damage? What will become of everything that we have worked for? 
Where will it all end? Now, the scandal about Jesus' parable is that we don't get any of those answers. We don't get any of those answers to those questions. We just get a fatted calf, a party, and a barbecue. That's it. So what are we left to do, church? Maybe we need to set aside our need for repentance and forgiveness and simply go to the party. When it comes to families, there are factors other than repentance and forgiveness that hold us together. The sheep in the coin did not, nor could they repent, but the celebration happened nonetheless because the man and the woman were able to rejoice at the finding of the loss and restoring wholeness. Restoring wholeness. Now, sometimes the one we have lost is right under our noses. Sometimes the one we've lost is right in front of us. Sometimes we're looking at the one we lost right in the mirror. So do whatever it takes to find the lost, friends. Do whatever it takes and then celebrate what has been found and then work hard to ensure that they will not be lost again. Don't wait until you receive an apology. You may never get one. Don't wait until you can muster the ability to forgive. You may never find forgiveness. Don't stew in your sense of being ignored, for there is nothing that can be done to retrieve the past. Instead, I say, let's go have lunch. Let's go to the party. Go celebrate and invite others to join you. If the repenting and forgiving come later, so much the better. And if not, you still have done what is necessary. You had lunch. You will have begun a process that might lead later to reconciliation. You will have opened a second chance for wholeness. Take advantage. Take advantage of any resurrection because you may not ever see it again. What counts for the family counts for our whole world in reconciling. So let us go to the party and dance, 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 dance the dance of life, dance the dance of love. And it's a complicated dance, so everybody can get up. And, and once you catch on, the rhythms of the music, you'll figure out the steps. And even if you look a little silly, waving and flapping your arms, you will lighten everyone's load and help the party begin. Let's party. I guess we must be having fun. Come on, you know this song. Talking Heads. Thanks for listening to this podcast from First Universalist Church of Minneapolis. We're a faith community committed to racial justice, and together we give, receive, and grow in the universalist spirit of love and hope. To learn more about who we are and our ministry, please visit us online at firstuniversalistchurch.org.